0: Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup to nuts rundown okay sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Listeners, get your tissues out. You're going to have a good laugh and a good cry with today's episode. I cannot wait for you to hear it. I have with me today Jessica Cording. She is a registered dietitian. She's also a health coach, a writer, and she is the author of the book, The Little Book of Game Changers 50 Healthy Habits for Managing Stress and Anxiety. She is also the author of a forthcoming book, which I had the absolute pleasure of reading, although I feel like I've truly been on an an emotional roller coaster (laughs) finishing this book. I literally laughed and cried simultaneously at the same time. I I could have used a lot more tissues on it, frankly. I I mean, I I think there will be a grocery run in my future. Um, I I just finished her her latest book, The Farewell Tour, which will be out in October of this year, which is may seem far out. But in fact, this, it's, it's coming. I mean, it's it's just time is moving quickly. I don't know. I've just been feeling a lot like that lately. I hope October doesn't come soon for the rest of us, but I hope it feels like it comes soon for Jess because this book is awesome and I think there is something in it for everyone. So the book, the new book, The Farewell Tour, is really a book that is designed, I will read you the little subhead here. So it's, the book is called The Farewell Tour. It's a caregiver's guide to stress management, sane nutrition, and better sleep, Honestly, when I say that there's something in here for everyone, there's truly something in here for everyone. Jess and I both had a very similar experience. We both lost our dads within about six months of one another. And this is truly the book that I wish I had read or had access to or had available to me when my dad was sick. And I honestly feel like whether or not you are a caregiver for both professionally or personally, whether you are dealing with you know, someone in your life who needs a little bit of extra help and extra time and attention. I honestly think there's got to be some good stuff, good nuggets in here for parents too, because there's just so much about just what it means to actually give so much of yourself to somebody else and how you kind of practice self-care within that structure. So I really, really believe there is something in here for everyone. I laughed, I cried, I laughed and cried with Jess. Honestly, you're going to hear it. It's all in here. It's all in the next hour of this magical episode. She has the best, combination of both practical tips, but also research in practice. And when I say practice, I mean, Jess has worked in a number of different areas of clinical nutrition, as well as corporate nutrition. And we talk about all of it, but she's worked with ALS patients. She's worked with cancer patients. This is, it's definitely a heavy episode, but it is also, there's a lot of joy in here and there's a lot of good laughter moments because sometimes when shit hits the fan, you got to laugh. You know what I mean? I feel like you're going to find that you do know what I mean by the end of this episode. Anyway. I will stop talking and let you listen to this incredible interview. Again, I really think there's just so much nuance and joy happening throughout the pages of this book and therefore throughout the pages, throughout the minutes of this audio interview. But I will say the one majorly unique thing about this book is that rather than take the sort of traditional approach to giving caregiver advice, Jess really has um, both her personal experience, but she also really wove in this major component of of her dad's personal and professional life, which was that he worked in the music industry and just named um, Elvis Costello, for example, as someone that she got to speak to for this book. And there's so many amazing interviews also included throughout this book. So I'm excited for you to hear this interview. I'm excited for you to read the book. As always, I'm here for you. You can DM me on Instagram at RD. You can also find me via email, Jacqueline at And I would love to hear your ideas for new interviews, for questions questions. questions for anything that you want to hear more about, or just tell me what you think of the episode by leaving a rating and a review on Apple podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you're listening right now. I hope you are subscribed. Just hit that subscribe button. All right. I will see you on the other side. Enjoy. But first let's get to a quick listener question. All right, guys, so today's question is What's the deal with inflammation? I feel like I hear about it all the time, but I don't really know what it is or how it's defined. Oh, what a good question today. All right, so in the simplest of terms. Inflammation is our body's own stress response mechanism that's activated to protect us from injury. So when we talk about chronic inflammation versus acute inflammation, what we're really talking about is a low-grade activation of our body's own immune system over time as a result of exposure to quote-unquote harm, right? Cellular disruption that causes tissue damage and ultimately organ damage. And in part, there's some degree of low-grade inflammation caused by normal cell degradation as we age. God, that sounds really fancy, but uh, bear with me here for a sec. Primarily dietary patterns, right? Diets high in saturated fat, added sugar and sodium and lifestyle factors like smoking, being sedentary, they can exacerbate or mitigate the degree to which we experience inflammation in our body. So in other words, to some extent, it's totally normal and it's going to happen no matter what over time. And there are certain ways and certain areas that we can actually intervene and stop it from happening even further. So, In general, Pro-inflammatory dietary patterns promote chronic inflammation through a cascade of biochemical reactions that basically push your body to work overtime to get the regular job done, which can cause damage to your organ tissues, the cells of your organ tissues. And inflammation can be identified by healthcare professionals by looking at certain biomarkers that show some degree of oxidative stress, like a cascade of those biological processes, and to what degree they're causing varying, varying degrees of damage to those organ tissues. But really in Interestingly, it's more of a cyclical effect from a biochemical standpoint, right? So, like, obesity is associated with chronic inflammation, but eating foods high in saturated fat, added sugar, and sodium can contribute to chronic inflammation and weight gain over time. And weight gain is also an outcome, right? Like, the more energy-dense foods we eat, largely from foods that are higher in saturated fat and added sugar, then the more we increase our risk of weight gain both from the excess calories themselves and from the inevitable inefficiencies caused by that level of stress placed on our bodies. So you can see how that can be kind of like one of these hamster wheel death spirals. I mean, that sounds morbid. I don't really mean death spiral, but you know what I'm saying, guys, right? Um, so how exactly does diet play a role in all of this? Uh, beyond this beyond the components of like the inflammatory diet, right? The added sugar, the sodium, the saturated fat, what would be an anti-inflammatory dietary approach Because of the impact on our metabolic processes and cardiovascular systems, the overall tenets of an anti-inflammatory dietary pattern can basically be a lifestyle intervention for managing disease progression and can be major, major risk reducer. especially when we consider what foods are actually linked to reduced risk of chronic inflammation and what actually these foods are doing in our body to help protect ourselves from damage. So all of these, you've probably heard me talk about so many times already, veggies, fruit, whole grains, nuts, seeds, oils, legumes, and lean animal protein, like low-fat dairy and seafood. These are all the dietary components that help significantly reduce risk of developing chronic disease over time, but they're also more likely to help maintain that healthy weight status. So just as that kind of like cycle of doom can work against us, it can also work for us. And, you know, again, like what I would call more of a pro-inflammatory dietary pattern, that's one that's going to give you greater amounts of added sugar, saturated fat, and sodium, commonly consumed most importantly in the US in processed packaged foods and beverages, especially sugary beverages, which is really the number one source of added sugar in the American diet. So in general, more water, more plants, more seafood were good right? We're fighting that inflammation. I hope that gives you a little bit of a snapshot of what inflammation actually is, how it works, and what components of an everyday diet actually looks like to to help to combat some of those pro-inflammatory effects and how we might incorporate some of those more anti-inflammatory foods into our everyday meals and snacks. That's just the sort of high level basics of all of it. If you have more questions on this, DM me, please, at Jacqueline London RD. I would love to hear your questions. I would love to hear from you. I would love to just hear. What are you thinking about? What are you snacking on today? Tell me. Tell me when you share a screenshot of this episode on Instagram and tag me at JacquelineLondonRD and use the hashtag on the side podcast. Guys, you're the best. I really just heart you. All right, let's get into the episode. I can't wait for you to hear this one. Jess, you're here. You're here. I'm thrilled that you're here. I am obsessed with the book. I'm most of the way through the farewell tour, but also I, I feel like I've been on a full-on emotional roller coaster all day reading it. Oh <laughs> it's my gosh. So good. It's so good. It is so poignant. It's so very much needed. Tell us what it's about first so that I don't have to just fell all about it for for an hour. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, no. And thank you for, for actually reading it. So as you know, you know, my when I was 31, my dad who was 61 was diagnosed with advanced pancreatic cancer. Um, it was deemed inoperable. And, you know, at that point in my life, my biggest drama was that I was almost 32 and still single. Thousand and just percent. So much.
0: Fully relate to that feeling. Yeah.
1: Yes. And like, and it just, you know, I was working seven days a week. I was juggling all these different, like, uh, jobs and writing and everything. It was just a big, everything changed, you know? And, yeah. um, at the time, you know, I found that I was, I had always thought that because of my work as a clinical dietitian and like all this experience working with really complex cases, very sick patients, I would be very well equipped to handle things. If one of my own family members ever became ill and yeah. wow, yeah. I was so wrong about that. And I, <laughs> I could not find any resources that really spoke to the young caregiver. Everything was so dry or preachy or just, I didn't have the attention span to follow like complex like guidelines. And um, I also wanted to laugh and be entertained And as good as that sounds. Oh
0: my God. Yes. Everything that you're saying, I just had, I feel like I'm going to have the chills this entire interview, but I also, I cannot relate to that more. No, you're totally right. Yes. Anyway, keep going.
1: Yeah, well, it was—it was a you know, and I know that you know what what that is like, yeah. and it was such a just bizarre experience to feel so isolated and yet like having to be there and and still being a, a functional human in the world, you right. know, running a business and like trying to do all your other things and figuring out that dating thing, like right. and. But my my dad, you know, he worked in the music business and I do talk about this in the book. At first I was like, should I really talk about this? But his work, it was such a big part of who he was and our family. Like we connected so much through music that the yeah. playlist for my dad's love language. And I grew up, he worked in promotions. So I, I grew up going to shows and really getting to see the behind the scenes. And he, the, the title of the book, The Farewell Tour, comes a from- a good title. Uh, such a good title. I, yeah. started as a working title. I was like, oh my God, my publisher's going to hate this. They're going to think it's such a downer. And they're like, no, we love it. <laughs> like, But that was what he called it. Like the last last months of his life, he lived about 15 months, which is a freaking miracle. Like Amazing. Like, like trial drugs. It was just unreal. Like we got to really spend really quality time together. But he called it the farewell tour. It was kind of a, a nod to like, you know, being on the road, like with, you know, with an artist. And right. it just, it kind of stuck.
0: I love that so much. Oh, I love everything about it. But I also love what you just said about how about feeling so uniquely isolated. I say that with the understanding that everyone feels isolated in their own unique way when going through something like this. But I fully relate to the like being 32 30- who you were 30, 31, 32, being 32 yeah. and having all of this like kind of come crashing out I, I mean, for me personally, you are on a handful of a list of people that I can name that I would actively feel like really understood me without even necessarily saying anything, right? And even when you're in it, like when you're going through it, you're not even, it's not even really like you're reaching out then. It's really only after the fact that you have this yeah. sort of like moment of like, oh yeah, I kind of need some people who could... I, who I can relate to, who can relate to me, and just kind of sit with that. Because I even felt like with my sisters, it was just, we were going through different things at different phases of life. So there were other types of togetherness moments and connection and all of that, but not, not this one. Like, not something that was uniquely specific to, like, the personal, strange isolation and what do I do, am I... Do I go to this thing? Do I not go to this thing? Do I go away for the weekend? Do I not go away? Like those moments, I just feel like, oh my God, who do you ask about this? Right? Like there was no one. So did you feel like when you were writing this, did you feel like some of those questions that would have come up for you then kind of revealed themselves now in hindsight? Or did you feel like, okay, I'm using, I'm working through this through writing it, like through writing it down?
1: It's interesting. Some things were a surprise, but some of it, so a lot of it was guided by what things did I want to know? Like, if I could have had someone tell me this is what you should do. So, I have chapters on, you know, stress management, nutrition. Like, for me, the nutrition piece, that was a little more intuitive just from having been a dietitian for so many years. Like, I found that for myself. Nutrition and movement came pretty easily because they were right. just kind of inherently, you know, part of my life. As a dietitian, I'm also a certified bodies instructor. Like they're just things that I are a regular part of my routine. But of course, I I wanted to include them because I have so many patients who are caregivers, yeah. and um, I think about what they questions they have, and you know, I talk about sleep. That was my biggest self-care struggle was the sleep. I, oh my God, I would just, the light would go out and my my brain would light up like a freaking Christmas tree. It was just insanity. And I would try to find like books to read and everything someone recommended either had someone with pancreatic cancer in the backstory or like a dead dad somewhere. And I was like... (laughs) What the hell? There are like a hundred kinds of cancer. Couldn't authors right. find like another one? <laughs> like, but um, we also talked about things like, you know, obviously there's a chapter. The, the chapter I was most nervous to write was about relationships and mm-hmm. how to navigate changing relationships, social relationships, work relationships, dating. There's a whole whole chapter about my dating mistakes <laughs> from that time in my life. Or one one that went well and another that was just like, why did I put myself through that? And then there's also a part about, like, end-of-life care, preparing for that, because, mm. you know, that was tricky, because my dad didn't, you know, my, my mom, she worked hospice during her training for uh, social work, and mm. but my dad like, didn't didn't want to talk about it that much, but, um, and this isn't giving away too much in the book, but he did convert to Catholicism in the last six months of his life, after having been pre-Orthodox for, right. like, <laughs> most of his life so like we had some interesting conversations around spirituality and I really would have loved some more resources on how to talk about those things more and how to have some of the conversations about you know what do you think happens after we die and you mm. know what do you want your funeral to look like and things like that you know I mean there's plenty more where that came from but I was yeah. really trying to think of questions I had and questions that people I've worked with and you know when I worked as an ALS dietitian um, for a number of years um, oh Jess
0: at, I mean you really Doing God's work. Like speaking of conversion, you're doing God's work. You've been doing God's work since graduate school.
1: (laughs) Well, I I would always end up with like the tricky stuff, right? Right. Like I would be like, oh, like you know, I'll go work at this place because everybody that gets better and goes home because it's elective surgery, and then they're like, oh, wait, but we have this neurology clinic. (laughs) Like all this stuff is like my whole career. I always. I gravitate to the things that I have to dig really deep. And I've just accepted that. You yeah, know, Once I, know. I accepted that that's what, who I am, like I'm here for it, you know? But-
0: totally. Totally. You're like, this is who I am. I'm leaning into it. I was an ALS. <laughs> it's just like, you have to laugh. Like, it's almost like I'm chuckling about it because not because it's, it's at all humorous, but just because the humor in it is in the fact that once you know it about yourself, there's almost like nothing you can't Handle, you know what I mean? Like it's like once you kind of accepted that, like there are certain things that you're like, all right, I of course I'm going for the complicated for this like extremely difficult area or like this emotionally taxing area of dietetics that like not a lot of people want to do. I'm going here and you embrace it and you do it so deftly and so responsibly. And honestly, I really feel like if there's anyone that just has the temperament and the disposition, but also the like scientific gravity to work with a difficult or complex population, it's definitely you. A thousand percent. Like I would choose you a million nice. times over to like get this girl in the room <laughs> I yes, in a heartbeat. You for sure. Okay. So spirituality is one thing, the relationships component is another. And actually, interestingly, now that you're saying that, I feel like those are two parts of the book that I have not yet dug into. So, okay. So I'm not going (laughs) to, so I'm not going to spend too much time on those just yet because I'm so curious to know what kind of solutions that, that you felt like you wanted to reveal or what kind of answers you wanted to learn more about so that you could provide those answers for, for other people. Can you on that note, tell us because when you're in it and when you're dealing with, with a specific family member who's ill or you're the caregiver in any scenario, you talk about the go bag. And by the way, I love that that was the first chapter <laughs> of the book. I love that you opened with that. I thought it was so perfect. Can you tell us what the go bag is? And what's in it?
1: Yeah. Well, so, okay. So the go bag for me, it really started... Well, I grew up, you know, right outside of New York, post 9-11. So that was, you know, they often, you would hear people in those early days talking about having enough food and having a go bag like in your car. Right. But then again, during Hurricane Sandy, I found myself working up at uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Of course, you know, the dietitians and interns at that point, um, we, we had to come to work because um, that's what you do in a hurricane if you work in healthcare. Right. And um, I remember our clinical like our manager telling us to pack a go bag you know like you know all the the necessaries and that that concept really i think i just have had a little bit of like ptsd from that <laughs> But for years like i always carried like and it's just amazing like how much just in case i was able to fit into like tiny purses like when going on dates and stuff like in new york but i still percent. have room for an pen um <laughs> but it just so in this book you know often we hear about the toolkit right, for self-care or whatever it might be, you know, your well-being toolkit, your toolbox. But that's a lot to lug around. And throughout the book, I came back to this concept of having a bag with you that you travel with. Because, you know, my dad, a lot of the artists that he worked with over the years, they were on the road all the time. You have to travel late when you are traveling either as an artist or someone in the band or the road crew. And I like this idea of having like a bag of the essentials for self-care yeah. and that at different times you need different things. And, you know, maybe someone's leaning into nutritional considerations for self-care at one point, maybe at another point, they really need to be looking at caregiver burnout and what's contributing to their stress and what are some solutions there, or, you know, is there a lack of organization making things harder for them? And mm-hmm. are there tools to really streamline their process? So things like that. But I think when it comes to like um, some of the really basics, like I think for myself, it was really important to me to focus on blood sugar. Um, Mm -hmm. Blood sugar management is just so important for, I feel like that and gut health are like the two (laughs) big nutritional things that I think if nothing else, I want people to take away from this book that when you don't know what else to do, or if your food options are pretty limited, like bring it back to focusing on blood sugar, like having that right balance of protein, fat, Mm -hmm. complex carbs, you know, to keep you stable.
0: So true. Okay. Keep going, keep going. So give us some of the snacks in the go bag, but also tell us some of your, if you're willing to share some of your personal go bag items, I'd love to hear.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny. Three different times in my life, I've had to evacuate buildings that were on fire. That makes total sense,
0: Jess. I I, I mean, only you, only you. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, you got to three. You got to three. You're done. You're done. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) I think we're done now. But yeah, like contact lenses were always, always first thing that went in. It had one phase in my life, the birth control pills went in the back too. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) no longer, but, um, I, you know and but no you're totally right like I would often think to bring a snack like I always have some kind of snack like even like when I was um in the city like running around all the time mm-hmm. I would always have like crispy chickpea snacks or dry roasted edamame or any kind of crispy bean mm-hmm. snack mm-hmm. chia seeds collagen uh, collagen powder in case I needed to put in coffee you know
0: oatmeal oh, I mean, it can go in anything it can go in anything right? <laughs> Yeah. Like, and th-
1: I mean, as a dietetic intern, you know, not having a workspace, remember the lab coat pockets? Oh my always God, had they were so the best. Snacks in
0: the I had 12 <laughs> snacks per pocket in those. <laughs> right? Like, always. I'm um, like, what else are these pockets for? I mean, what's like it- You don't need a calculator. You have a calculator on your phone. Right? I mean, I, yeah. I always have deodorant so in my lab coat pockets, though. That's I'm a like- great one. That is such a yeah. good one, too, because those things would get a little. They get a little foul after a while. Like it yeah. just was like, honestly, that's so smart. I really wish I had done that. I didn't do that. Yeah, I also
1: used to keep a aside from, you know, I hadn't had my pager, but I always had and for me, like this there's chapters about, you know, like journaling and tuning into your feelings. And for me, I always carried a little notebook where I would scribble down like lines for like poems or short stories, or I've written personal essay since Oh my gosh, like that was what, like I, the first time I went to college, like that was, mm-hmm. that was what I did. A lot of personal essay, poetry. So I always had the emergency poetry notebook in my pocket. And I still, I still feel naked if I leave the house without a notebook and a pen. Like that. that's, that's yeah. a big tool for me.
0: Jess is really the ultimate right brain left brain person that like came to the planet as equal parts both. Do you feel like that? I feel like you yeah. you too were sort of born into the identity of a right brain and then you were like, wait, I have this whole left brain, but also I like, now yes. but then you still have to bring it back to like how do I make sure I take care of both? <laughs>
1: That's the biggest, that's a big struggle for me. I think I probably will always wrestle with that to some extent because like I work great in the left brain world, but I have this right brain soul that also comes in there and I'm lucky that I've been able to create opportunities for myself along the way where I can use both every day. But I have to keep that in check because if I don't, I'm doing lots of left brain stuff and lots of right brain stuff, and then I don't get to rest the brain
0: enough. Oh, my God. Resting the brain, critical. So on that, let's get into a little bit about caregiver burnout because you mentioned it and I'm thinking about it, and it's such a big topic that I feel like never gets enough common discussion, like in every day, because there's also so many different shades of being a caregiver. Can you tell yeah. us about caregiver burnout? What did you learn in both research and in your own personal experience and practice?
1: Yeah. So with caregiver burnout, you know, it's, it really stems from, you know, you're caring so much for, you know, whether, whether it's someone, a family member or a loved one of some kind, or if you're a professional caregiver, it can still come up, you know, that's your occupation. Right. But, you know, you're so focused on caring for the other person that you neglect your own needs, you know, and that can lead to physical and mental health issues over time. You know, it can lead to also feelings of sometimes resentment, which is really an uncomfortable emotion for a lot of people. It can lead to feelings of feeling guilty for having negative feelings about... (laughs) Feeling burnt out as a caregiver, yes. you know, and people will experience, you know, sometimes it'll show up in terms of irritability or feeling isolated, depressed and down. Or sometimes you'll experience more physical manifestations like appetite or weight changes or increase in like different like inflammatory markers when you go to the doctor right. or... You know, insomnia is a big one. Lots of different ways, it, it, digestive issues, you know, and it's a, a very real struggle. And so, from a research standpoint, obviously, like these are the signs. Get help, you know. Like, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. But as a you know healthcare practitioner who was like showing up, I you know I quit at that time. I left my then clinical job, like at the ALS clinic. That mm-hmm. was why I left because I needed to be able to. My mom's sister and I we were splitting caregiver duties, but we all had our different. It was almost like you know when you're on the road with a band, you know there's the tour manager, the road manager, you know there's there's lights, there's audio, there's craft services. Like I was probably the craft services person, but you know, but right. we all had different roles, but we. All all split up time and I would take my dad to chemo a lot or I would come out to New Jersey a lot and just kind of like run errands for him and be with him and cook for the family and but my sleep was so bad that my immune system took such a nosedive Mm. and I ended up with like uh because that's another thing when you're not resting well you're not restored well you have a lot of if I had taken a cortisol test at that time I think my levels would have been just insanity (sighs) I could feel like the charge running through me and I had this my left thumbnail, I got a manicure for my sister's wedding and that, there's a lot about that in the relationship (laughs) section of having my younger (laughs) sister get married while I was going through all this. But I had to end up having to get my nail removed. Like I had an allergic reaction though first. So what happened was the, the infection didn't go away so I tried it four rounds of different antibiotics. And the final one seemed to clear it up. Turned out I was allergic to it, but I didn't know it. I thought I was having an eczema outbreak and I went to urgent care. They're like, oh, here's some cream. My face started to swell up. My throat started to swell up. And I thank God I was still working a corporate wellness gig at a TV network where they had, you know, a wellness center. And I went to work there that day like this. One of the nurses was like we need to give you Benadryl stat. You're beyond <laughs> F- again status. I and mean, you're just going to cancel your patients today. And you're just going to lay in the back room and just kind of keep an eye on you. Oh my but God. For me, it was like such a wake up cause. Like, wow. Like I'm so checked out of my own physical health right. that I missed what could have killed me. Like if I had tried to sleep it off, like I probably wouldn't have, you know, right.
0: right. Oh my and God first of all, I remember you telling me that story. And at the time that you told it to me, I remember being like, oh, I know exactly what that feels like. I, I did not have a similar experience in that specific way, but like, but the feeling of like, you're not in your own body as so old. much is the strangest yeah. feeling, especially for people who have spent so much time talking about thinking about looking into speaking about anatomy, physiology, and like feelings, like hunger and satiety cues, like things that are really second nature to us at this point that almost require that kind of step back of being like, oh, that's what it's like to have an allergy attack? Like, oh, is that what it's like to have your throat close up? Oh shit. Like I need to really get myself to get, or like just have that check moment. Like, okay. But like the beauty of somebody looking out for you, I just love that so much that she was like, we're going to cancel your patients." You're gonna get
1: a Benadryl Uh drip. Like, I just remember she gave me the injection, like right, like a double dose, like right in the arm. And like, I don't remember feeling high, but my email history from that day tells a very different story. It was just like, I should not have been on email on
0: that much Benadryl. Oh my God, but. that's so good. I love that so much. I have to switch gears for a second and we'll come back to more caregiver stuff in a little bit because it'll tie into some other, <laughs> some other questions <laughs> I have for you. But I got to say that another thing I love so much about this book is your sense of humor and how you wove that into, obviously this is a heavy topic, but I mean, even anyone who's listening to the 20 minutes or so of this conversation so far is like, you have such a sense of humor and your ability to bring that to people who would be reading this that really just need that. And I just wanted to read this one, (laughs) this one thing that really made me laugh out loud when I saw just the title of it. And then I started scrolling and I was like, oh my God, she's such a genius. This is chapter 11, a small collection of unsolicited advice and unhelpful comments. (laughs) I mean, yes. Have you tried juicing? Have you tried juicing? Please fill us in. Give us a little color on this. Have you tried juicing is where I actually spit out. I was taking a sip of water. I spit it out. Like that really got me. I was like, that's fucking hilarious thank you. Thank you for bringing this into the world in the written form and in the form of this book. Tell us, (laughs) tell us about the unhelpful comments.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. So many, like my dad didn't want us to tell, we're not allowed to share on social media, but like in real life, you know, people who needed to know for logistical reasons. And like, I think my favorites, <laughs> yeah, so the juicing came up a lot. Yeah. Or like, oh, like, did he go on a plant based diet? When well, my dad had cancer, he he went vegan. And I'm like, my dad is a stubborn Greek Italian man. He is not going to fucking go vegan. Honestly, like, fuck you. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was, I wish, I wanted a sign over my head that was like, please don't talk to me about my dad going vegan. Like, seriously, but he, no. Like, just other stop. Things were like, things like, oh, like, I also remember someone was telling me, oh, maybe if he had taken, you know, this supplement, Juice Plus, if, mm-hmm. maybe if he
0: had taken that, he uh, he wouldn't have gotten cancer. And oh, yeah, like, Juice Plus, that's that'll do it. Wow. Just some powdered, right. dehydrated vegetables. That just cures cancer. Oh. It's better than chemo. I,
1: like, uh, and then there was, well, has he tried that chemo where they turn you upside down? Like, right. You're like, he, It's the it's the trapeze
0: <sighs> chemo. You just go on the trapeze and you do chemo upside down, hanging from your knees. And you're like... Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And that's when you just go numb in the face? Like, you're just like, "Mm -hmm. Mm
1: mm-hmm. And I know people mean well, you know? like, And I think that they're taking from their experience, you know, and trying to offer something helpful because they don't know what to tell you. But it's just like, there were so many times I wanted to, like, throw a drink or, like, punch someone in the face and just be like, no, I'm not buying him mushrooms from the farmer's market because he fucking hates (laughs) mushrooms. Like. Actually, that's not true. My dad liked mushrooms in an omelet. Like he yes. would eat like a mushroom omelet once in a while, but not the kind of mushrooms like, you know, trying to get him to eat turkey tail mushrooms or a, right. like he just, you know, he wanted his white button mushrooms in an omelet with American cheese, you know? Right,
0: a thousand percent. Like, I'm sorry, what generation are you coming from where you're like, just try the mushrooms? It's like, I mean, generation. What, where are you coming from? Period. Where you're like, try the mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, well, I think too,
1: when someone like, again, they've had an experience and they like, they just want to help. But like, it's weird. So working in the oncology world, you know, I'm in tune with that want to do something, you know, and it's such an out of control experience for someone to be experiencing, you know, either their own diagnosis or family member's diagnosis. And there's so much you can't control. So like, it's really easy to get hung up on juicing, which I am not a juicing person, but, or mushrooms, or like, you know, buying all the cookbooks. And I, you know, and I want to hold space for that. I think that there is a place for looking at where Mm -hmm. you can make some changes and improve someone's quality of life. Like, Mm -hmm. There was a side of me that would have loved for my dad to have been like, yes, tell me what to eat so I have less abdominal pain or like, Mm. tell me what to eat when I'm nauseous and nothing is appealing, you know, but he didn't want that. And I had to meet him where he was. And it was so, I couldn't explain that to someone who was like, your dad's so lucky to have a dietician for a daughter. Oh my God, Jess,
0: we got to talk about that. (laughs) We've got to talk about that because it's such a unique experience to be a healthcare practitioner who is hearing that from people when your own family is dealing with something or when you're dealing with something, right? Like is like, oh, how wonderful is it that you're a dietitian? But I was hoping you would share a little bit with with our listeners about like that experience of the uh, you're you're so lucky your daughter's a dietitian kind of phrase
1: well it's you know that was one of the hardest things because you
0: know yeah I, I i'm super type a like right. that's not, that's dietitians like, just in case anyone is listening and doesn't know this already although i would imagine you do dietitians very type a <laughs> You can't oh, help me, it. it's, it's in the just DNA like, just just you don't go into the profession without having some sort of type A mania attached to your brain. It's just there. Just exactly.
1: Yeah, you know, occupational hazards. And like I found for myself, I maybe mean, it's because I grew up Catholic, like I'm just conditioned to always think everything's
0: my fault. Thousand percent. Like, I'm so guilty. <laughs> like, a thousand percent. And that, that's that's coming I, from a Jew. So I mean really Jews and Catholics, basically the same. <laughs> yeah, we will always feel
1: guilty about something. <laughs> But I will say with my dad, you know, I found myself thinking, obviously in the short term, I was like, wow, I, I really wish I could fix this. I hate problems I can't fix. And I remember feeling a lot of shame, you know, a lot of heaviness. Like shame is a very low vibrating emotion. <sighs> and, yeah. you know, I felt like I was just down at the bottom of the ocean, you know. I um, but I remember it was part of it was about not being able to fix the situation he was in at the time. Yeah. But I also would feel bad sometimes about. Had I fostered an environment in our family where he felt like he couldn't change for his own reasons, or where he felt like he had to hang on to unhealthful eating habits? Mm. But then I would get feel guilty about thinking that. So that's like, oh, that's patient blaming, and you yeah. know, I, it was complex. And I, totally. I, I, um, it also hurt sometimes that he didn't want my help. You know, because like yeah. I had the power—not the power, but I had the knowledge to help alleviate some of his discomfort. But he didn't feel, I I mean, my dad was so stubborn, you know, but it was, it was a very, it was a very complicated range of emotions.
0: Yeah. I mean, what you just said about meeting him where he was is so powerful too, because I feel like if anyone could learn anything from just you saying that is that like, that ultimately is the biggest, it's the most important thing you can really do. Cause like, you're not going to change somebody's eating habits now, especially when like that patient, that person is managing so many things, but in just the very small, very isolated, you know, every day is just managing, not feeling great. Like even on a good day, you're still yeah. not feeling great. So like, it really is ultimately like what might really work the best for them. And it might be something that is, it's just alien to you for knowing who that person is, but in that moment is working. Like there's just so many things like that, that I feel like by you, saying that and sharing that about the the meeting him where he was, it, it just brings a lot of peace to the whole situation. You know, like there, there's something really peaceful oh. about that rather than thinking like, I'm just going to, ah, this is what I do. I've got to fix this. Like, this is going to be so, the small thing I fix, but like, I'm going to fix it anyway. Like there's, there's just, it's very hard to get out of that once you're in it. But hearing that, I think puts it into it a beautiful little perspective, little huge perspective. Once, once he
1: accepted that, you know, that he yeah. really just wanted me to be there and just be his daughter, you know, that made things a lot easier. You know, I think the first 100%. few months, because when you get a diagnosis and different conditions, you know, they have different prognosis, but with pancreatic cancer, you know, they were like, we're not going to sugarcoat it. Like to date, nobody has survived this. Mm. You know, what you have is a really nasty kind. It's metastasized wherever the fuck it wants to metastasize
0: to. Just do. doing what it and, wants.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think on some level, mm-hmm you know, I think that there, you know, and I'm comparing to other cancers, but this can apply to other conditions too. I mean, obviously I had worked in ALS care for about mm-hmm. three or four years when this happened. So I was used to like bad news and kind of prioritizing quality of life. Mm-hmm. But I think also, you know, there are certain conditions where, you know, like, like breast cancer, for example, you know, it's super high survival rate Yeah. Um, and other cancers where, you know, you've got like 50, 60, 70% survival rate, you know, it's a different mindset. But with right. this, Yes, we had that initial like push of like, oh, well, someone's got to be the first to survive this. And, but then, you know, it, was, it quickly became apparent that, you know, we really needed to shift our focus. And mm-hmm. I think once I let go of my need to fix things, it really became more about how can we have the best experience possible? And really, for me, that was about being as present as I could be. Cause that was something I really hadn't been for a long time. I was, I barely saw my family cause I was working all the time. I was on an extended hiatus from dating yeah. at the time my dad was diagnosed. Yeah. And it was really about how can I reconnect and actually live my life with, with
0: the people in it. You know, yeah. that was really a big shift. Oh, so on that, you mentioned this thing about, about being present. And I wonder if you could just expand a little bit more on like the sort of lessons or insights gleaned from the idea of both personal boundaries and like emotional boundaries, but also staying present and how you kind of negotiated both of those.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a few chapters. Actually, there's an entire section about time and energy management. Yeah, um, I left out the chapter because I, I, re- I first draft was like 82,000 words and my contract, <laughs> I was only allowed 65,000. <laughs> so the, the, the chapter on self-care for empaths had to get put into file for another project for another time, but. God
0: damn it, um, Jess. That's the, that is a chapter. I really need to, re- I need that chapter in my every day. I hope you get that. And you're gonna, I hope that's going as an essay. So, someone yeah, published that going, essay. It
1: is, it's definitely going to be something, but I, um, what I found really helpful and it's what I share in the book is, you know, setting clear boundaries with yourself, like kind of knowing what's okay with you, what's not okay with you. Mm-hmm. And we have echoes of this too in the relationship section. I did have um, a dating expert. Yeah. I interviewed a dating, and there's a lot of interviews in the book as it's well amazing. for people outside my scope. But, you know, and I think also practicing saying no, oh. but also practicing asking for help. Um, I think that's something a lot of people forget about. I know for myself, I felt like I had to do everything myself, keep it all to myself. Right. And when I talk in, there's a whole section about making a stress management plan. Mm. And a lot of that is, you know, uh, identify the thing that you are struggling with. What's causing the stress? Could be something big, could be something little, could be a, you know, complex, you know, like tangled web of necklaces, right. you know, and that you kind of untangle and figure out, okay, well, what's one thing I can do? Like, what's one thing that I can make some impact on? Right. And then coming up with a plan to manage that particular issue and also getting support. But we also, you know, I know people will say, oh, call me if you need anything. And oh, that's not helpful.
0: I was just going to ask you about that. Can we just pause there and just expand on that point? Give us a little background on on that and your experience with it.
1: Yeah, so I think it depends too where someone is at. You know, if it's um, needing help with childcare, like yes. that is a huge thing that comes up for people. And I think that seeking help with that um, or pet care, mm-hmm. I didn't have a pet. At, like in, my, my dog was living with my parents at the time. So like- Cause I remember worrying like, oh, like if I, if I died in my apartment and my dog ate my face and no one knew until smell went to the hallway, but um, (laughs) did not have to deal with that at the time. But I, um, yeah, so I think things like childcare, pet care, um, but even things like cleaning your house. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't vacuum my floors for like a year and a half. I just kind of forgot. I like, I had a vacuum in the closet, but I just, you know, so that could be something like hiring someone Mm -hmm. if it's in your budget, or if you have a friend who's willing to help with that. I think if you have a friend you trust to like come, you know, water your plants or help with like, for me, <laughs> vacuuming would have been great. Like, oh my um, God, or, yeah. you know, like if you need help with laundry or, you know, if you have someone who's offering to bring you food or like, you know, I think sometimes it's hard to accept mm-hmm. help and people will, you know, at other times they're like, oh, like I'm, you know, do you want some dinner? Do you want leftover? You know, like, I think that sometimes it's, we're okay. just conditioned to say, oh, no, thank you. But really, if there are people that you trust to ask or if there are people that are offering specific things, and this would be advice for someone, you know, who knows someone who is a caregiver, like offer specific things you can help with. Yes,
0: yes, yes. There is something so powerfully poignant about what you just said, because I feel like that's exactly it. Like you play your own strengths when it comes to anything to do with caregiver support and also grief in general. Like if you're a great baker just leave the muffins at the door. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's like the best possible, it's like the simplest advice, but like also the best possible advice. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, we got to talk about your dad and White Castle because that is very integral to to this podcast. We got to talk about White Castle. Tell us, tell us about it. Tell us about it. And tell us what was your dad's order at the White Castle?
1: (laughs) So that is in the chapter on medical marijuana. Love it. Which, love it. That was an adventure for the whole family. But we didn't get high together. But if you read, you'll get to hear some of the stories. But yes, my father had a love of fast food. White Castle was... I, I don't understand this, but he just... He loved White Castle. He didn't eat it very often. But his first foray into medical marijuana, mm-hmm. um, we got a family tutorial on how to pack a bowl for him. And um <laughs> he didn't realize like not to have... Too much all at once. And
0: anyway, that's hilarious.
1: Long story short, the whole family ends up in the car because um, he wants high. to go like, <laughs> he, like, we're all like, none of us are high, but he's just in the front seat, just blazed and comfortable. <laughs> you know, like the marijuana was the one thing that, like, brought him, like, he had an appetite. It helped with his pain. Like, it was magic pain for him. Changing. And, but he, it's he hilarious. housed, like, three or four of the little White Castle burgers and a shake. And I think there were fries. And I just remember sitting in the back seat, like kind of zooming out, you know, being like, I know I should be kind of grossed out by this, but this is really fucking funny. Like just this 100%. funny family
0: moment. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Wait, so it was fries. There was a burger. What else? I mean, I hate, this is very ignorant of me. And I'm really embarrassed for myself in this moment that I don't really know what's on the menu at a White Castle it's so a the little tiny burger. Oh, yes. Yeah, they're the they're baby like burgers.
1: Okay. Yeah, they have, I think they're called belly bombs, unless that was just what my dad called them. <laughs> but, <laughs> like, they're, I, I've i tried one maybe once as a child, and I hated it so much, I, like, I you don't You didn't eat
0: meat it. for however long we get, like, you... <laughs> I think maybe oh, right. what, if the you,
1: regime. what if that
0: put you, what if that put you, what if it was White Castle to put you off meat? Jess? No, well now it's okay. Cause your dad is even now he's doing great PR for White Castle. I feel like it's, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's okay. It's okay. Even okay. if White Castle put you off of meat for about 20 or so years, 10 years, whatever it is, it's That's okay. Cause he made up for it for you. Yeah. They have their loyal fans.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'll be real like, as a, as a clinician, yeah. I'm like, you know, we know that red and processed meat contribute to increased disease risk for, you know, cardiovascular disease, certain cancers, like, you know, implications in terms of cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. Like I know all that, but like, you know, my dad has terminal cancer. Like if he wants to eat a freaking white oh cancer or four of them, like,
0: and it's you. the first
1: thing he's eaten that stayed down in weeks, like I'm not going to take that away from him.
0: No, I mean, like, there, I, I don't know if you experienced this at all, but like, when something would work, like, right, like, when you're really in that stage, like, when something works, you kind of double down on it. And it, like, may not work the next day, but like, in the moment, yeah. you're like, we'll have 55 burgers to go, baby burgers. We'll, have, <laughs> right, we'll have the 55. just want to give them yes. something that works. Yes. And it's like, yeah. And then, yeah, the next day, they're like, oh, I, I
1: don't eat that anymore. Right. <laughs> like, and you're, that
0: like, you're <laughs> like, that was 12 hours ago. What happened? No. I know, but that really is that really is so funny. I love that so much. Are there any other special meals that your dad really loved that you can like any food memories from from childhood, from like even the last couple years of his life, like any really big food memories that stand out. I just love that you wrote about White Castle in the book because I thought it's such a perfect thing. Like it's just such a perfect moment. And also I love that it, that it was not your everyday McDonald's, Jess. It wasn't like, okay, there's one on every corner. It's a White Castle. I don't even know where my local White Castle is. Is it just Northeast yeah, I... by the way? <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't, is there still one? Like, I think there was one in like
1: in Brooklyn or like there is. down near, I don't know, maybe it was 14th Street. I can't remember anymore. I lose track of, but yeah, you know, part of me is like, oh man, I'm a dietitian. I'm admitting all this stuff, like, oh, that I let my, you know, that I let my dad eat White Castle, but his, That's what his, we thing- do. Well, it's like, yes. again, you got to meet it. the person where they are. Right. But my dad, he had a sweet tooth. So like his, he often would say that ho- chocolate haagen was that nectar of the gods. Agreed. And, okay. Like that was like <laughs> totally kind of agree. what he lived off of his last few weeks. Cause nothing really tasted good, but he yeah. would do like the, the bars, like the chocolate haagen bars with that yeah. chocolate on the outside and the chocolate ice cream on the inside. Like that was his jam. That Love was like kind of all that was going down.
0: I love that. I love that he called it nectar of the gods. I just feel like, yes. I mean, isn't that what ice cream is, just generally speaking? I mean, maybe chocolate for him, but like, yes, it is nectar of the gods. Oh, man, that's so Good. Okay, but was there anything he loved to cook or were there any special restaurant meals that you were yeah. like? Uh,
1: he was not like known for being a great cook, but he would make <laughs> this thing called Greek macaroni, um, which was basically just, it was such like bachelor food. It yeah. was like whenever my mom was working late and he happened, he worked with, my dad worked like a dog. Like he worked like until like wee hours in the morning, traveled a lot, but on the very rare occasion, he was home and cooking dinner. <laughs> so Greek macaroni, which was uh, ground beef, sauteed with onions. And, um, then you would add a can of diced tomatoes, um, a generous sprinkle of oregano Mm -hmm. and then serve it over elbow macaroni and Greek macaroni. was what he called it. (laughs) I grew up eating Greek macaroni, I don't know what it it actually is, but that's, that was a staple food in our house.
0: You get to college and you're like, do you guys have Greek macaroni? (laughs) Exactly that's so good. I love it. It's got like notes of hamburger helper in there, but then we got the diced tomatoes coming in strong. I just, I mean, honestly, that sounds pretty good. Like I, it sounds pretty tasty. It looks like my
1: Greek relatives owned a diner, but none of like that side of it. Like my grandmother wasn't a really good cook. My aunt doesn't really care much about cooking. And my dad grew up eating yeah. diner food, you know? Right. <laughs>
0: So really, everything there. It's just a little bit of everything. I love that so much. What about any of your best memories of being at a restaurant with your family that were so insane or so funny or just so off the rails? Like yeah. any, any good food <laughs> stories on that front? <laughs> I feel like oh, your dad was, has that sense of humor that oh my God. Like, just like, can't be replicated. Just- He would say things like, so the
1: the one thing he wanted to do before he died, which sounds very morbid, but like he loved this Steve Goodman song called Dying Cubs Fan, a Dying Cubs fan's last request. Mm. And it was all about like, because there's a whole playlist in the book. So every chapter has a song and I have interviews with some of the artists that he worked with. But this song was about like a blues song about a a Cubs fan saying what he wants the funeral would be like. So we made a lot of jokes about stuff like that. And he really wanted to take like one last family vacation. So he was like, we're just going to take a big, stupid vacation, like ridiculously like over the top. But we went to Grand Cayman together for five days. we were at this beautiful resort and we went to like their fancy restaurant one night for dinner. And he, he just, he didn't have much of an appetite. You know, he couldn't bring his marijuana to um, the Cayman Islands. So he was, his appetite was really suffering. He was nauseous. And so he just, it was like one of those things. It was like a special treat. It was like, my family doesn't normally eat like this, but it was like, you know, uh, like a hundred, $200 like a
0: person like per, you know, for the meal. You know, it was right. like a big, but he just couldn't eat. And like he wanted to one take of it these back. like like, six-part, like, these, like, fancies, exactly. like, yeah, okay, okay, and he just
1: wasn't up to it, and he felt so bad,
0: but he was, like, can I bring it back to the room,
1: and they were, like, no, you can't take the leftovers with you, and he's, he's walking down the hallway, he's, like, for $400, I should be able to fucking rub it all over my body, and there was this woman, like, <laughs> cracking up behind him in the hallway, like,
0: it just yeah. First of all, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's hilarious, and also I'm upset. I'm coming for those people. <laughs> what do <Right>? you mean? <laughs> what do you mean for four hundred dollars a person? I better be able to take this fucking tablecloth and wear it over my head in case it rains. Like I mean, Seriously. what are you saying? Like what? What is that? Oh God! You know uh, what? But is that
1: trip, there was a guy who worked in like the gift shop where they sold ice cream bars and. I was looking for something for my dad to eat and I just and when you are going through and it's like the caregiver experience yeah. like I feel like the, sometimes I don't know if you had this but you would yeah. have moments where you like had no filter
0: left you were yes. just so all exhausted like all the time
1: just mm-hmm. truth bombs and like I was like I'm sorry I don't mean to be this candid but my dad just you know he has cancer and he's not doing well and the only thing he can tolerate is these ice cream bars <laughs> and like yeah. the guy was like oh my mom just was dealing with cancer and like and he would <laughs> set aside ice cream bars for me so that whole trip I was just able Able to like get as many ice cream bars as my dad needed. Like oh, it was just a nice, a, a weird, and as a dietitian here I am talking about just like giving my dad ice cream, but like, that's what worked. You that's know? what
0: works. I also love that generosity and that kindness of that person. And I really, really love that story. I really love that story. Cause it's true. Like the second you start sharing, it's like these little things come out of the woodwork and like these people who are like, Oh yeah, I got you. I got your back. I got, I totally got your back on this. It was
1: like I was blown away by like just generosity along the way. And as I was working on this book, the interviews with the musicians and mm. the industry people, you know, that was not the original plan when I pitched right. the book. I literally that came to me in a dream. And I woke up and I was like, oh crap, I'm about to make this project way more complicated. Uh, but I I have to do this. I have to follow this thread. And I was just so it was just um the conversations like when I spoke with these people there were people I, I knew, you know, that I had met along the way, like, you know, but just being able to, I mean, it, it killed me that I couldn't share everything, like mm. our whole conversations in the book because of word limit. But as you can see, I'm like stumbling over this because I hate dropping names. But you know, one artist that I spoke with for the book was Elvis Costello. Who oh my God. Okay. I'll just time.
0: fell for you. I'll just be like, Oh my God, Elvis Costello. That's fucking amazing. Okay, tell us. Tell
1: yeah, us. It's just, you know, again, like someone I just have so much respect for as an artist and who over the years was always just very kind to me, you know, yeah. like, cause I would often be around like, you know, backstage and stuff and. But just being able to, you know, be vulnerable with him, with other people that my father had worked with or with the healthcare experts that I interviewed for the book too. You know, we've got some really great, you know, and I, again, like some very high profile people were generous with their time and expertise for this, but they also shared some of their stories too, as caregivers and what it was like for them caring for an ailing parent or loved one. And just, I found that as I got more into talking about this project with people and working on it. I realized like it's it's such a universal topic, and yet it's such an isolating experience. Mm. And I think that sometimes being vulnerable it gives people the yeah. opportunity to share their experiences too. And you know, to echo what you were saying earlier, like to feel to feel seen and heard and understood. And I know that when I was going through it, I really craved that validation because yeah. it was so hard to keep it to keep it under wraps. And I felt like I had to keep it under wraps, and that that took a lot of
0: energy. Right. Right. And that's like, it's like the last thing that you really necessarily need at that moment is like, you're already spending energy in so many different ways and all over the place. And depending on whatever else is going on in your life, like there's just so many things happening at once. And then you're spending all this energy, keeping it in. I I totally relate to that, but you're so right. Like just the experience of even speaking with other people who have been through it experts in different places because it really is like the great equalizer like I hate that phrase sometimes because I think it it sort of takes away from from what we were talking about about the unique isolation but also the collective isolation is so so real and and those like unique feelings being showing up in other places with other people yeah and it's
1: something that almost all of us go through at some point some way, shape or form. And yet I think we, it's very easy to put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do it right. You know, yes. even if we've never done it before, <laughs> And yes. you know, yes. and I just, I wanted to be able to offer a resource to speak to that. And I know, you know, when I was an intern, I don't know what your experience was like. I know I did my internship at Presbyterian, yeah. you were at NYU, right? And- I was
0: at Sinai, but like, I guess now it would be the same thing, but yeah. Anyway.
1: Yeah. And like, I I remember I had a preceptor. I forget which one it was. I think I remember, but I don't want to be wrong. Um, But they said, you know, if when you're writing your assessment, you know, if you are putting things like in the objective part of your note, if you're, you know, if you're mentioning something at the beginning of your note, you have to be prepared to acknowledge it later in your note, you know? And so for me, that was something I kept in mind when I was writing. I was like, especially with personal things. I was like, if I'm putting this in here, it needs to be intentional. Like Mm -hmm. I could have told stories for days and days and days, you know, but everything that I shared in here from obviously the clinical experience, but also from my personal experience, I was very thoughtful about being intentional and sharing things that I would be prepared to speak about if needed, you know, not things I'd be like, oh my God, why did I write that? You know, in the first draft,
0: there was plenty of that,
1: you know, The guy was right. like, things that I was like, I know that if I leave this in, I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night wondering why I left that in. So, you
0: know. Oh my God. Does that feeling ever go away? But that's such a good point. It's like the soap when we first started, at least when we first started, and then it became a dime, right? Yeah. Like the assessment, diagnosis, intervention, monitoring, evaluation. That's what it stands for. Oh, I'm impressed with myself for getting that up yeah, top to of my head. I have to remind myself now. <laughs> But like, that's such a good editorial note. I mean, really, like what a great I, editorial note. Like if you're, it's going to be uh-huh. in here, be prepared to address it. And I fa- actually, now that I think about it, how many books have you read where you're like, where did that character go? <laughs> right. like, no one was following A-Dime for putting this book together. Like what's happening here? Totally with you. such a really good, like poignant way of framing any kind of creative process too, which just brings us right back to your left brain, right brain geniusness.
1: The, the left brain, it's like neither side, they, they don't like to they don't like to turn off. But you know, but I, I have found there's a lot of crossover between the scientific world and the creative world, and they re- they can really complement each other. And the, for me, it's always been about okay, like we have to be integrating them. They don't have to be at odds. Like right. I know yeah. in my own life, whenever I've allowed things to combine, to meld, and to really integrate, like that's been when it's become
0: more useful. A thousand percent. I've got to ask you this question, even though I think I know the answer to it, but I've got to ask you this question and then I will ask you our last question just because I know I have to let you go. Although I could talk about this book and I could really talk to you for about several days all at once. Anyway, is there any kind of life lesson of sorts or like, are there any couple things that you feel like you've walked away, like, listen, you're still working somewhat, right? Like you're working in breast cancer now. So like you are still working in, in a very clinical and very hyper clinical setting, but uh, are there a couple sort of like takeaways of sorts that you feel like through writing this book, you found yourself coming to or feeling like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. That's really, that feels really meaningful about life that I learned from this process. Is there anything like that that came up for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was going through a very intense time in my personal life when I wrote this book. You know, we were between homes. We were living at my mother's house. Um, And I just moved out of New York. I actually went through a cancer scare myself during the writing of this book where I spent an entire month not knowing what my pathology reports were. It was like, uh, you know, questioning things about like motherhood and careers, so many things coming up and, you know, but... One thing that kept coming back that I think a lesson I learned through the process of, you know, caring for my father and really it forced me to question what was really important. And I think that when we have these moments in our lives where something really calls into question, you know, we don't know how long we have on this planet. So what are we doing with that time? And I think that for me, you know, it was really and something, you know, I, I would hope people would take away is just really feeling like it's okay to have your own answer, yes. you know, to really give yourself permission to tune in and to listen. Um, and it sucks, right? That sometimes it takes, or often it takes a really big thing to wake us up and say, hey, like you're on the hamster wheel, like get off the freaking wheel and actually live your life. But I think just really tuning into what is really important to you and what, How do you want to spend your time? How do you want to spend your energy?
0: Oh, yes. I feel like crying. I love that so much. That's so great. That's so well said. That's so well said. All right. So our last question on this podcast is the same for everyone. It is not just special. I hate to say yours, your answer will be special, but this is not a special for you question, even though it may sound like (laughs) it is. It might sound like it is, which is it's your last meal. Listen, I've sugarcoated this for other guests. You'll hear me say things like, you're going to space tomorrow. Elon Musk wants to take you on the spaceship and he wants to tweet from the spaceship that we're going to space with Jess. But no, but in this case, it's your last meal. (laughs) Jess, (laughs) give us like, what is the perfect, like, what is your dream meal? Now, now, this is a hard one for people who work anywhere in food. So I'm also yes. going to give you the caveat that this can be like just a snapshot in time of like today, this is what you're just, dis- you're definitely having for dinner or what you really want to have tomorrow or something you're looking forward to having this summer, whatever it is, it can be anything.
1: Yeah. Well, let's see. A few things come to mind. If this is like a lunchtime version, I am obsessed with the niçoise salad. I don't know why. It's something about like the seared tuna, the briny olives, and like in a world where headaches are not a thing,
0: a glass yeah. of crisp champagne on the side. Thousand <laughs> that would be a nice percent. Thing. Jess, that's a beautiful thing. Where would you go for this niçoise salad besides Paris? Oh, I don't know. I mean, like, it's funny. I have not found all my, my places outside. of. I'm so close
1: to New York though. Like mm-hmm. I would still, like, I've, I've had great niçoise salad at like Balthazar. I've had um, uh, Mermaid Inn. Up, upper West one. Side has
0: a really yes. nice one. Yes, they do. Mermaid Inn, Balthazar. Both of those niçoise salad are delicious, but I have a real theory. I'm, I have a working theory that a briny olive is what makes a great salad. I mean, yes.
1: <laughs> frankly, it, it might
0: maybe? be what makes a great meal. I, I don't know, but there's something about the brine in the mix of crisp veggies. And then you said champagne and I'm like the, those three things together.
1: It's just the, the the bubbles and the crisp and the the salty and the bread. It's like, oh, all the flavors. I love it so much.
0: That's oh, delicious. All right. This has been amazing. I cannot wait to finish my reading tonight, but also hear everything about how it goes with the launch. When is the book coming out? Where can people find the book and where can people find you in general?
1: Yeah. So the book launch date is October 11th, 2022, which I I like (laughs) that because it's 10, 11, and then 10 plus 11 is 21 and then 22. So it's just the numbers are very satisfying to me. I love that. problems. But so, um, yeah, you can buy it. I mean, anywhere you are used to buying books. Obviously, Amazon, it's available for pre-order. Um, Simon & Schuster, you can order it out there. Barnes & Noble, lots of places. And of course, you know, if you want to learn more about me, my work, you can also check out my first book, The Little Book of Game Changers. So I'm, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Jess Cording, Facebook, Jessica Cording Nutrition. And of course, my website, JessicaCordingNutrition.com.
0: Amazing. Jess... Thank you so much. Thank you for being here and for sharing all of that with our listeners. I just feel like that was everything. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at RD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out, check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers.